What a, what a beautiful work of art. Once again, if you appreciate, you admire that, would you just give a round of applause for our creative team once again? Thank you for that. And for all of those who set up, uh, tear down to make this worship service possible, along with our worship and praise team, thank you for leading us in worship. Uh, we are beginning the book of Proverbs. I, I know that you heard from uh, God disciplines those whom he loves from Pastor Daniel Penn. We're going to move backwards just a little bit. The first eight verses of Proverbs chapter 1. Let's turn there in your phones or in your Bibles. It'll also be projected overhead. I've entitled this The Beginning of Wisdom. The Beginning of Wisdom. Let's pay attention to this. I'll read it for us as an introduction to this marvelous rich book. Verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. An introduction to a treasure trove. The wisdom of God to these multiple royal authors. We start with some Proverbs from David's son, King Solomon. The beginning of wisdom. I'm just going to ask three questions. We'll answer them through this passage and as an overview from the book. Question number one, what is wisdom? Question number two, how does wisdom begin? Question number three, who gets it? All right? What? How does it begin? Third, who gets it? All right, what is it? What is it? Verses three and four. Instruction, it says, for your dealings. Let's all three more words. In righteousness, justice, and equity. Verse four. Wisdom is somewhat associated with or equated to or involves prudence. And then knowledge and discretion. Just from the first four verses, it seems to me wisdom is vast and complex. It has immense relevance to every practical area of life. I'll break it down this way to the book of Proverbs. It actually gives you a new set of skills. Whatever wisdom is, it actually presents and puts into your life a set of skills. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 24 to 28 actually tells us that if you're wise, if you're endowed with the wisdom of God, you inherit or you receive survival skills. Survival skills, go figure. In Proverbs 30, it talks about four small creatures. <coughs> Excuse me. In particular, ants, rock badgers, locusts, and lizards. And the royal king or observer is saying, these four small creatures, although they're not inherently powerful, 
They just know how to survive. In fact, with lizards, they thrive. They end up in the royal courts of kings. What is wisdom? Gives you a set of skills. You know how to survive. Here's a second set of skills. Technical skills. Technical skills. If you're really wise, did you know that by the Spirit of God, you not only get to pray more openly, read the Bible with more understanding, go and be bold as a witness for Jesus Christ, and serve His church, the Spirit of God actually gets you to do excellent work. I toyed with technical skills or artistic skills here. Exodus chapter 28, Isaiah chapter 10, and through the Proverbs, when you are filled with the very Spirit of God, His people get to do marvelous, beautiful work with metals in particular. Wisdom presents survival skills, technical skills, a third set of skills, administrative skills. Administration. Oh, how our church needs it. Anyone who works with me, you'd better be skilled at administration to cover all my weaknesses here. You could also say it's governance skills. Administrative and governance. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 15. 1 Kings chapter 3. I'll read two more verses from Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8 verses 15 and 16. Here it reads, By me, wisdom, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, once again, by wisdom, princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. Listen, if you're in any position of governance or leadership or making hard decisions, you know that there are a lot of decisions you have to make that are unforeseen, unpredicted. You didn't even know they were coming. And there are a lot of decisions sometimes you have to make that you cannot have the time or the luxury to do, uh, deliberate or get a consensus. Sometimes you've got to make some decisions on the spot. How would you make the wise and good decision? The wisdom of God. The wisdom of God presents survival skills technical skills, administrative and governing skills. Last but not least, there's more, of course, but relational skills. And I find this to be the major focus in the book of Proverbs and throughout the entirety of the Bible. You see, the root and chief evidence of having a loving, good relationship with God is to turn around and be able to have loving and good relationships with others. And we just got to the book of 1 John. One of the acid tests is that if you say that you love God, if you really want to know that you love God and you have the love of God, is you must turn around and be able to love your brother and sister. What is wisdom? Survival skills, technical skills, administrative skills, relational skills. I'm sure everyone in this room have heard this saying of that boy is street smart. Or that gal is whip street smart. What do we mean by that? I think what we mean is that person can make it in that corporate culture. They're going to thrive in business. They know how to make money. They're street smart. Or that person knows how to live and survive and thrive in that neighborhood. Or in politics. Street smart refers to someone who knows how to be savvy and get by in the real world. Then we turn around and say, oh, you're book smart. Book smart. We all know what book smart means. You get really high SAT scores. You went to all those after-school tutoring programs. That's been your entire life. You get into fine schools. 
You're in think tanks. People want to hear your thoughts. You're a great consultant. Book smart. Book smart. I have a good friend who told me a story about a month ago. I couldn't stop laughing. His daughter got into a fine, fine university up in Northern California. And the dad was checking in on his daughter. Say, hey, honey, how's it going? She's like, oh, dad, everything's great. But, you know, my laundry's piling up in my room. And the dad asked, why are you waiting so long to do laundry? He said, well, it takes me a long time to save the quarters. I need to get enough coins to go to the laundromat. And so the dad was, uh, honey, what, what do you mean? What do you mean you got to save coins? Well, I got to wait till I go to the liquor store, go to the grocery store. I give him enough money and then I get the change back and I save all that change. And the dad was like, uh, honey, you do know you can go to a bank. There's a thing called a bank. If you walk inside the bank, you can get rolls of quarters. Her mind was blown away. You see, she grew up in a world where she never walked into a bank. She only knows ATMs. She knows Venmo. She knows electronic digital exchange. She'd never been inside a bank, let alone see anyone go to a bank and get rolls of quarters. Do you know what the book of Proverbs is offering? It's offering at least both. At least both. Street smarts and book smarts. Now, by the way, when I say smart, you do know that this is not an intellectual category. This is not an intellectual ability. I'm so moved and I'm learning so much along with our CC, uh, CCSE Access Ministry, which offered a free screening called Intelligent Lives yesterday, moved and wrecked the second time. But when it talks about wisdom of God, it is not just an intellectual capacity, not at all. No, 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 no. It is talking about a moral, spiritual, absolute worldview takeover, which is a God-given skill. So here's the wisdom. Here's the wisdom of God. It is the God-given skill of living and keeping with the cosmic order. Meaning, for you to grow wise, according to the book of Proverbs, you have to pay a lot of attention to God's word, which we call special revelation. You have to be a student of the Holy Bible, the scriptures, and you must be a student of God's world. You need both. Proverbs is offering both. Because it is a God-given skill of living and keeping with the cosmic order. Even when the Bible is not explicitly clear. Right? Like how many situations, scenarios you have that you have to decide something where you cannot look it up in the Bible and it's not explicitly clear. Like who should you marry? Who should you date? What should you major? How should you dress today? What time should you show up? Should you drive in this lane? Should you get that car? How many scenarios do you find the answers to that in the Holy Scriptures? Here's wisdom. Here's wisdom. It's to know God's word so well and God's word, a world so well, where they both come together and you have a skill of living righteously, equitably, fairly, generously, pleasing to God. Hmm. You know, in Proverbs chapter 8, it lifts off that when the whole cosmic order, the heavens and the earth and the billions of galaxies and stars and planets throughout all of the cosmos, do you know that when it was made, God had an architectural blueprint to it? God is the master designer and planner and project manager, and he executes it on time. Do you know what or who was with God when he rolled out the architectural blueprint to all of the universe? 
Wisdom was with God. Wisdom was with God. And here's what wisdom put into place. It put laws into place. Okay, so nobody here disputes physical laws. Like the law of gravity. You can't see it. But a smart person in the past observed that this, is, this must exist. Gravity. No one disputes it because you don't try to break it. You don't try to defy it, do you? Like you don't jump out of an airplane without a parachute. You don't try to jump off the top of a building expecting that you're going to be okay after that. As soon as you break that physical law of gravity, you immediately hurt and suffer the cost. Here's what the scriptures are saying. Did you know that there's laws into every sphere of life? There's laws into social relationships. Parents and children, brothers and sisters, employer, employee, kings and servants. There's actually laws into the environment. Into the environment, men and women were to manage and take care of all of God's good creation. And if we continue to violate and break all these invisible laws, there are consequences to follow. Now, here's the trouble that we all have in this room, starting with myself. None of us here try to dare to break the laws that have immediate consequence, like, again, the law of gravity. You know you're going to have to go to the ER and get that prior cast. But why, then, do we continue to break social laws? Moral laws, which is given in the Ten Commandments. I think it's because the consequences are not immediate. You don't immediately suffer or feel it. And so we tend to dismiss or minimize and defy laws that are in place, just as much as the law of gravity. And we just continue to break it, break it, break it, break it, because we don't immediately suffer from it. Here's wisdom. Pay attention. Here's wisdom. The wisdom of God is to get you to stop breaking those laws before it actually has to hurt you and bite you back. It is wise to not break those laws even if you don't feel that it hurts you immediately. Oh, you know the prime examples in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve did something that God explicitly told them not to do. You see, that's the test. That's the test. God is God. We're not. He's creator. We're creature. He's greater. We're not as great. He's wise. We don't have his wisdom. God told them, don't eat of that. Because on the day you eat of it, you will die. They ate. Because the serpent, which is the personification of Satan, the evil one, came and said, if you eat of it, you're not going to die. So they ate. And then you look at the story and say, look, oh, of course, Satan was right. God was wrong. They ate. They didn't die. No, you don't understand. They didn't immediately physically die, but they immediately spiritually died. Socially, they died. Their marriage fell apart. Work life fell apart. They got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And do you know what worst of all happened on that day? They started running from God. They were so ashamed, they actually ran away from their maker. It's just a matter of time, my friends, which wisdom will get you to defy. It's just a matter of time that when you continue to break all these laws, as sure as physical laws exist, scientific laws exist that you cannot defy, if you continue to defy all these other laws in every sphere of life, wisdom tells you, you have to pay. What is wisdom? It's the God-given skill of living and keeping with the cosmic order. 
You're a really good student. There's no substitute from the Holy Scriptures, God's Word, the Bible, and of God's world. Second question. So how does it begin? How does it begin? Verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Chapter 9, and then throughout the book of Proverbs, this is repeated. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge and discretion and prudence and instruction. You guys remember those days when you were fearless, uninhibited, reckless? And we were like that because we had not yet suffered the consequences. Um, I think I was age nine. I verified with my mom this week. She says I was five. So we'll shoot right in the middle. I think we were, I was seven. Before we went on a huge vacation to like Yosemite with other families, I decided to run across the street without looking. And a car hit me in the face. I have a scar right here to prove it. Knocked out four teeth. My head landed on the black asphalt. I still remember looked up, look on my parents when I was just bleeding out on the way to the hospital. They just thought I was dead. This right here for some of you brings immense relief and clarity. You say, now you see, this, this explains everything. This explains everything, Pastor. Thank you for finally sharing that. After that incident, did I ever run across the street again without looking? Did I ever run across the street without looking? If I did, the Bible would say, you're a fool. Not an intellectual designation. It's a moral one. You're a fool. A fool. How then does the wisdom of the Lord begin? Do you know that there's an appropriate fear? Did you know that there's actually a godly fear? Did you know there's a protective, preventative, proactive, life-giving fear? As we get older, hopefully, by the grace of God, we're getting wiser. Hopefully, we're not just aging. Hopefully, we're growing in wisdom. And I know how difficult this is when we say wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. That's just a bad, dirty word. But I'll tell you, in a relationship with any good father or good mother, it ends by saying, please pay attention to your father. This is your mother's instruction to you. When you're in a good relationship with any good mother or father, that fear is never debilitating or dreadful. Yeah, I posted this morning on this Father's Day as I reflect upon this once again. I have found more to be proven. It's almost a mathematical equation now that many of us relate to God exactly in the same ways we relate to our dads. That many of us have learned to relate to God almost precisely the ways that you used to or still relate to your dads. Uh, so if your dad was always busy, always making money, always providing for the household, especially from an immigrant household, you revered your dad, like you looked up to your dad, but your dad was always distant. Your dad was never affectionate. Maybe your dad was never involved. Guess what? Guess this is, you're going to tend to do this with God. You're going to respect God. You're going to revere God from a distance, but you're never going to be close. 
And when your parents were so aloof or not that involved, too busy for you, you think God is the same. And so you end up becoming very, very self-reliant, don't you? Very proud. Like you hate asking for help. You're just not used to to ask for counsel. Like you're not into prayer. You're not into getting therapy. You know why? Because you grew up your entire life having to take care of yourself. For those of you with authoritarian or really abusive parents, they beat you. They abused you. They were just straight up evil and wrong to you. Maybe to this day. Do you ever wonder why you're so mistrusting and cynical? You ever wonder why you tremble and are so insecure, not confident and poised? Oh, how about those of us who go into parents who like never corrected you, always doted on you, never disciplined you, always made you feel like you're going to conquer the whole world. Oh, you're going to also look at God as not on a higher plane, but like on an equal plane. Like he's your buddy, he's your genie. Like he should do what you want, tell him to do. Listen, my friends, listen. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The fear of the Lord. Do you know that this fear that comes from God is perfect? Do you know that it's always appropriate? I know that in every human relationship, you either have too much of the wrong kind of fear or too little of the right kind of fear. But the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of all wisdom, is appropriate and perfect. I've got three features to break down about the fear of the Lord. It's that vitally important. If this is the beginning of all of wisdom, we've got to grasp what this is. Three features. First, it's reasonable. To fear the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, to fear the Lord is reasonable. Uh, there's an older German theologian by the name of Gerhard von Rad, who gave a commentary on the whole book of Proverbs. Here's his conclusion. Proverbs is a book that tells us that religious faith is not only not opposed to reason, but constitutes its possibility and its connection to all of reality. What von Rad was saying then is that your view of God and all of reality is the foundation from which all reasoning, thinking, knowledge, instruction, understanding, and counsel proceed. Von Rad was contending that if you understand this book, it's not opposed to reason. In fact, all reasoning comes from your view or relationship with God or the lack thereof. You might say, how could this be? What are you talking about? Religious faith and reason go together? No, 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 no. I'm living my life. I'm an educated person, and here's what I believe. Everybody should be free to determine right from wrong. Everybody should live his or her life as they see fit, as long as we just all get along. Everybody should use their own reason to live a life that would be civil and hopefully promote some world peace and cure some diseases and be good to people. Listen, listen. Do you know that you're assuming something monumental there? I know most of us believe it, that everyone should be free to determine right from wrong. But then you are assuming something magnificent underneath all that. Here's what you're assuming. Either A, there is no God, or B, there is a God, but God just doesn't care what you believe or how you live. If you think everyone should be free to live as they please, no one could tell them or impose any moral order or anything, no objective kind of morality, no, no, no. 
we should be free. You are either assuming there is no God, or if there is a God, this God is uh, indifferent. This God won't judge. He won't bring anything into order. Now, I'm going to ask you this question then. How do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know there is no God, or if there is a God, that that God is careless? Can you prove it? Oh, you say, no, well, you know, I'm the type of person that only believes in things that are scientifically proven. I only believe in statements and propositions that are scientifically proven. Well, that statement in and of itself cannot be scientifically proven. Just as much you may laugh at religious people who say there's an afterlife and heaven and hell and there's a judgment and everyone's going to come gather around this person named Jesus who came back from the dead. Can you prove otherwise that that is not true? Here's all I'm trying to say. Here's all I'm trying to say. Here's what Proverbs is saying. You don't know it's true. You can't prove it. You hope it's true. You wish it's true. And do you know why? You think it's reasonable because you live in this current culture and climate. You're a product of this culture, Western culture, which is actually an anomaly throughout all of world history. And I ask you to consider that for you to go through all of life, look, you see, you're betting your whole life this has to be true. Either there is no God, or if there is a God, he just doesn't care. You are betting your life and eternal destiny upon it. You're gambling. Do you know what that's called? That's called faith. You have to have as much faith as religious people do. The Proverbs is saying, it is utterly reasonable that when you believe in equal rights, that Hong Kong should protest and rebel against an extradition policy back to mainland China, that when sex trafficking with the underage people is utterly abhorrent and wrong, we should stop that. When you say those are true, there ought to be equal human rights. Where do you think it comes from? Where do you think where that comes from? There's no objective morality. There's no objective reasoning. There's no objective counsel. There's no objective instruction. There's nothing. There's nothing objective or absolute apart from God. Therefore, the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's reasonable. Here's a second feature. I think the word fear is used because it's humbling. I think a dosage of humbling is good in America, just a little, don't you think? You think that might do some good in your life, being humble? To fear the Lord means you're limited. Like you shouldn't cross certain boundaries. You don't know everything. You don't know what you don't know. You haven't experienced all of life yet. Maybe you don't know God's word. Maybe you don't know how God's world really works. The fear of the Lord is humbling, not harmful. Not harmful. Most of us maybe grew up even in a church where you hear fear of the Lord. It's like, are you afraid? That's how you think. Are you scared? Are you afraid? You better be very afraid. Very, very, very afraid. What's wrong with you? Are you not afraid of God enough? That's the way you think of it, right? Again, it's that dreadful, life-debilitating type of fear. Is this the fear of the Lord? No, not at all. This is actually straight from the Old Testament. Look at this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, which, is, which will be projected. I'll read it for us. <coughs> and now, Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? 
but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In the Old Testament, he says, fear God, and then a couple phrases later, love him. Love and fear are not opposed. Love and fear don't collide. Love and fear don't fight. They might be two sides of one coin. In the Old Testament, they understood to fear the Lord does not mean this dreadful running away, sweating, anxious, panicking, fear of punishment. Never, not at all. You don't really love the Lord then yet. But to really love God, there is an appropriate perfect fear. Oh, well, why do we use this word though still? Why do we use this word? Well, it shows us our place, our radical limitations. It's good for our psyche and our soul. It gives you actually an incredible relief from having to prove yourself or stand out from everybody else because to fear the Lord means we're really all the same. We're all creatures. No one's actually inherently better. And then in practical life, to fear the Lord, the Proverbs tend to say, it's not an absolute mathematical formula. Please don't read Proverbs that way. More on that later. But the Proverbs are so wise, you have to pile them up on top of each other. You have to know which context it fits. It's not a cookie cutter mold. Not at all these short sayings. You got to be very careful. It's like a sucker, a lollipop. You have to continue to suck on it until you get to the middle. You may not really understand it. You got to think hard. But this kind of fear of the Lord, what it really means in practical life is, if you are wise, it will tend to, tend to lead to great joy, prosperity, honor, and long life. Third feature of the fear of the Lord. It's reasonable. It's humbling, not harmful. Third is what you fear usually shows what you love. What you fear can show what you love. Psychologists have always been telling us, follow your fears, follow your nightmares, trace them back. Why do they tell us to do that? I don't know if you do that. But psychologists actually tell us you should do that. Do you know why? When you follow your neuroses, when you follow what keeps you up at night, when you follow what makes you most insecure and stressed and angry, you usually get to the doorstep of that which you love most. Of that which you love most. Because you're so fearful of losing that. Asian-American gal, quite an accomplished violinist, she grew up, trained, practiced hard to become a great world-class concert violinist. She didn't quite make it world-class. Devastated her, devastated her. She's really good, but it devastated her that she'd become what she wanted to be. Do you know what kind of parents she had? The parents always tell this gal, we love you, we love you, we accept you. You don't have to become this, that level. We love you, it's fine. She ended up in an institution because she was absolutely torn apart by her failure to become a great world-class violinist. And she would say stuff like this, I know my parents love me, I know my parents accept me. Which tells you what? This girl had pretty good darn parents. She wasn't looking for love or approval. That part was fine. And then she went on to say, because she attended church, I know that God loves and forgives me too. And then she'll finish it off by saying though, but I can't forgive myself. I just can't forgive myself. 
Why is she saying she can't forgive herself? What does she mean by that last part? Here's what I think she means. Her whole life, it wasn't so much that she needed to be loved or approved by her parents. She wanted to make her parents proud. Her whole life, she wanted her parents to go around bragging about her. Her whole life, she felt like her immigrant parents, she wanted them to feel like it was satisfactory and worth it that their daughter turned out to be world-class. And when you get, don't get what you've been working for. When you don't get what you wanted most in life, it only robs you of all of life. Now here's the point, my friends. Here's the point, my friends. What you fear most losing, what keeps you up at night, what bothers you and upsets you most, it could be your children. What a great thing. What a great thing. But your children can never be a God thing. It could be your spouse. It could be your smarts. It could be your income ability. It could be your reputation. It could be your father. Whatever it is, from there will flow your wisdom. Whatever becomes central, whatever you love or fear the most, actually will affect the entirety of your life with its own wisdom. But the fear of the Lord, only the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you know what this means, my friends? <laughs> this means you don't start with God to become successful and happy. You see, you don't just begin with God to get to something else. Your fear is not the Lord. Your fear is success and happiness. You don't begin with God to get to something else, or you don't begin with anything else. But it's the right, appropriate, perfect fear in a relationship with God that unlocks a treasure trove of wisdom for all of life. We close with this. So who gets it? Who gets it? <laughs> Can I ask a different question to precede who gets it? Who wants it? Who wants it? And you think, oh, what a no-brainer. That's a stupid question. Who wants it? Of course everyone wants it. No, not so. The Proverbs say wisdom is like crying out on the streets in the public marketplace. It's like kind of warning and telling you things throughout life through preachers, pastors, aunts, grandmas who pray for you, friends, people come and warn you. Like it's been blaring in your ears, but you constantly defy it. Why is that? I have to ask you who wants it. Do you know why? You think it's a no-brainer, huh? What a no-brainer who wants it? I'm sure everybody wants it. No, it's not a no-brainer because it's going to actually take some of your brain. To want the wisdom of God actually means you're going to want to submit. To want the wisdom of God actually means you're going to want to examine life. To want the wisdom of God means actually you're going to have to reflect and repent and actually learn from failures and past weaknesses. That's what the Proverbs do. To want the wisdom of God means you're going to have to surrender, wait, discipline, be patient. Oh, before who gets it, who really wants it? Who really wants it? And do you know who really wants it? And do you know who really ends up getting it? We read it in the verses. Those who are young, those who are simple, those who are foolish, and even those who are wise, they know better. They need a lot more of it.
Those who know that they don't have wisdom but desperately need it, it's yours. Those who know that they are not wise but desperately need wisdom, it's offered free of charge. You can have it. My sister, my wife, and mom, no matter how much older I get, they, search, they, see, they, they see certain things in my life. Harold, we've been telling you this for years. You just don't listen. Like, you're right. You have a problem listening. We've been telling you for years. Do you know that everybody in this room has a certain neurosis or addiction or problem or moral failure or scandal or anything? You don't, it's not a problem whether you knew right from wrong. The problem is, you actually don't want the wisdom of God. You don't want to submit. But it's offered. It's offered for free. Remember the architectural blueprint in Proverbs chapter 8? When he divided the seas from the lands, the heavens from the earth. It actually told Leviathan and these ginormous great sea creatures. Up to this line, but you cannot cross. God mapped out the universe. It says wisdom was there. And these royal authors throughout the book of Proverbs, they are utterly so wise. They have royalty and education and power and privilege to be able to think. They're able to actually go into the royal courtroom and foreign princesses and kings would come and say, I've never seen wisdom like this, especially in the courts of Solomon. But I want to tell you something like this. The analogy would be, that's just the runway. The book of Proverbs is just like the plane gearing up, warming up for takeoff. But you're still on the ground. The question is, when are you going to be able to fly and get up in the air? Here's what God did. He brought out of the skies, out of the air, the very wisdom of God, packaged it in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The wisdom of God that the royal authors in Proverbs were so fascinated by it. They knew this is the key to success and long life and joy and prosperity. They wanted more of it. Centuries later, God actually brought it down in a person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not making this up. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, Apostle Paul tells us the New Testament gospel. It reads, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'll tell you what this means for me. There have been many a times in the life of this church where the Bible is not explicitly clear and there's no real life precedence or history or track record. In a lot of ways, we've been doing things on grounds that we really can't get any consultation from anybody. And uh, we're sitting there as leaders who pray and love this church and want what's best for the church, but we don't know exactly what to do. Secretly in my heart, do you know how many times I've asked, God, why don't you just basically give me a textbook, please? And we do have a textbook. It's called the Book of Church Order. The Book of Church Order actually gets into all these areas where it tells us from history and godly people. They give us, this is usually what we have done. But there's so many situations and decisions where the book of church order has no clue and actually doesn't tell us what to do. So then my prayer turns from God. Instead of give me a book, you know what? It'd be really nice if Jesus just showed up. 
It'd be really nice if Jesus just showed up and told us exactly what to do. Oh, you see, listen, my friends. You know God could have given you 10,000-page encyclopedia? He just turned to the right page and said, in this situation, do this. But you know, that's really heavy to carry around. It's kind of a burden. And do you know what God did? He did something much better. He sent Jesus Christ down to come. And Jesus Christ didn't come to just teach you how to be wise. He didn't just tell you to do this, don't do this. Over here, do that. Over here, don't do that. He actually came to live out his wisdom in you. He didn't just teach you how to be wise. He actually makes you wise. Through the mysterious relationship where he comes by faith, through his Holy Spirit, and he lives in you. And so, you know, the next time where I'm utterly confused and my head hurts because I wish Jesus would just show up? Maybe. God is just wanting his children to grow up a little, learn and exercise wisdom. As we walk with him, learn from him, you can come and get it in him. I close with this invitation from an old, old singer. I could never get over this song. But if you can accept this invitation, if it clicks, if this makes sense of you, Right here on the spot, Jesus Christ can make you wise. Here's a song from Michael Card entitled God's Own Fool. When we in our foolishness thought we were wise, he, Jesus, played the fool and he opened our eyes. When we in our weakness believed we were strong, he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool, for only the foolish can tell. Believe the unbelievable and come be a fool as well. Come be a fool as well. The next sermon in this series is I'm just going to talk about all the different varieties and categories of fools. I'm one of them, if not all of them. You're one of them, if not all of them. The only question that's left is what kind of fool will you be? Why not become God's own fool? The wisdom of God looks and sounds and feels like utter foolishness to this world. But God's own fool, God's own fool in Jesus will lead to eternal life and then some on this side of heaven. Please come. Come and get it. Learn of him and see the whole world in a brand new way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the riches you offer. This is a treasure. And we're just beginning to open the door. Oh God, I pray that by by this power of your spirit, you would help us to not only understand, resonate, but most of all, respond in trust, in hunger, in humility, in submission and obedience. Bring us to Jesus all over again. For in him are hidden all the treasures we need. Help us to learn of him and follow him all our days. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.